Hi guys, it's Josh Rubin at Douglas Elliman in New York with the latest edition of the Rubin Special with my friend Frederick Peters. Fred is the CEO and president of Warburg Realty Partners. Fred, thanks so much for taking the time out to join us today. I'm delighted to be here, Josh. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So, Fred, you know, we're coming out of uh, one of the strangest times in uh, the history of New York City uh, and certainly the scariest of the last hundred years. Um, I know that you're fairly plugged in, uh, given all the writing that you do for various media outlets. Uh, what are your thoughts and feelings about uh, our experience over the last eight weeks? It's been unique. Uh, I was just writing this morning, actually, that we're trying. It's always easier to absorb an experience if you can contextualize it. Sure. And so we've been trying, I think, all of us to try and analogize this in some way to either 2008 or 9-11. And I think one of the biggest problems we have is that in the end, it isn't really analogous to either. It is very different from 2008, which was a financial crisis caused by overreach in the world of finance. Um, it didn't close restaurants. It didn't stop people from interacting. It created fear, but it was a whole different kind of fear. I, I have felt that 9-11 was more similar, but even there, um, most of the city continued to operate even as everything came to a halt below Canal Street. Um, and I think 9-11 also engendered a lot of fear, which is similar to this. The thing about 9-11 was it was an incident. It didn't happen again. People were afraid that it would happen again, but it didn't happen again. So all the people who left the city relatively soon came back. Um, this is not like anything we've had before because it's ongoing. We've been out of commission for two months. I'm guessing it'll be another month before we begin to have a very constrained version of our business coming back to life. But even then, we know there are going to be peaks and valleys. We know that opening up the city will make us more vulnerable to additional cases of the virus. We will see another spike in infections that will make more people want to stay home I actually think we're probably realistically looking at a full year of disruption before we're back to something which more closely resembles the business we were in before. Yeah. You know, I, I agree with you. And that's what I've been telling people, not just the business, but really what New York is known for and attracts people is the quality of life, right? It's the culture. It's the center of arts, commerce. Uh, you know, international trade, you name it. And so it's going to take some time to, to regain its footing. Um, but I think as far as housing is concerned, which is really the, the core focus of both your and my business, 
Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a little bit of pent up demand and, and a backlog of, uh, of buyer interest once things loosen up over the course of the next month. What, what do you think is likely to happen to the city locally uh, over the summer months? You know, it's a great question, Josh. I am a little more skeptical, I'm sad to say, than many of our colleagues, you included, about the pent-up demand thing. I think there definitely will be pent-up demand. I just don't know precisely how it will express itself, especially since um, we'll be dealing with ongoing anxiety about being in a strange place like somebody else's apartment. Um, we'll be dealing with ongoing anxiety by sellers, even those who are eager to sell, about having a bunch of people they don't know in their apartment. And so I think the next couple of months is going to be a slower start than I wish it would be. One thing I do think is that we're going to see a lot of inventory. There's a lot of inventory on the books already. Then when you take into account the shadow inventory of stuff, which was taken off the market or stuff on which I know there are a bunch of exclusives in my uh, shop, which are signed but have yet to be put on the market because people are waiting for a moment when the property can actually be marketed and shown. You, Josh, I'm sure you've had the same experience. There's a huge amount of talk about virtual buying. Um, I'm not seeing so much of that. I believe we've done precisely two deals, maybe three, in which the buyer didn't actually see the property before making the purchase. I just don't think most people are very comfortable with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think rent renting is one thing, right? Rent renting is one thing. You can rent an apartment. Different. Right. That's different because you're not making that long-term commitment, you know? Right. I mean, I've been saying for years that I think one of the things about real estate is that buying a property is, it's an example of your belief in the future. And when people are fearful, they're a little more anxious about committing to that future. And that's when we tend to run into some trouble with getting buyers to get off the dime. I also think one of the things we're going to be grappling with, and I'd be interested, Josh, in hearing your take on this, is I think we're going to be grappling with a lot of people who imagine the market is actually in more distress than it's in. We've seen that already uh, at my firm with the people who wanted to renegotiate their existing contracts and they came in saying they wanted a break of 20%, you know, that was just completely unrealistic. 
you know, you raise a good point there, Fred, and I literally just got off the phone with a client of mine who's in contract to purchase something downtown for $2.2 million. We negotiated that deal in the week between Christmas and New Year's. Of course, the market was fairly active for the holiday season. And uh, we were told by the listing agent that there was another offer. And the listing agent is a uh, an established broker, uh, you know, doesn't have anything to lose or gain by telling us that there is another offer. So I have every confidence that there was, in fact, somebody else circling. Um, I don't know exactly where that other offer was. We wound up negotiating a deal that was about 3% below the asking price. It was a fair price. And, you know, it wasn't a steal and it wasn't a home run um, for, for either party. Uh, but we went to contract, the buyer was perfectly content, and then you know things progressively started to unravel right around the time that we got the condominium's approval. And um, you know, the buyer understandably said, Hey, you know, let's see how this all plays out through March. And uh, it was uncertain. And then uh, you know, as as things really got, you know, very depressed as far as equities were concerned, right around March 20th to the 25th. Uh, she started to say, hey, I might have an issue here. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to close. Uh, some of the assets I was going to use to close are in these equities, which are now uh, underwater. And so um, you know, she started to you know, raise concerns. And I said, you know, let's see what happens as we get closer to the uh, stay-at-home order being lifted. I think equities you know, will bounce and sure enough, they have. Uh, but nevertheless, she's seeing these reports, uh, you know, some of which are anecdotal and some of which are more factually based of renegotiations happening, uh, people walking away from contracts, et cetera. And, you know, I, I liken these deals to, to you know, people who, who sell at the bottom and, and buy at the top because people are walking away from contract deposits for, for the sake of certainty. But, you know, we're buying these homes for just that reason. There are homes. So we're going to get value out of them just for the fact that we're using them and we're not buying them to resell them in three, six, 12, 18, or 24 months. I always tell people that come to me, if you're buying something, buy it if you're going to be there for at least five years. Anything less than that, it's really marginal and, and you may end up losing a little bit of money. You might be better off just renting if you're buying for less than five years. So, you know, in this case, she's buying it to have for five or more years, but yet she wants to renegotiate. And so, um, you know, we saw that report on CNBC on Friday with Robert Frank, where he's talking about people renegotiating a five or 10% and brokers that he's speaking to are saying that they think that the market is going to come off by as much as 20%. Now, where is Mr. Frank getting this data from, Fred? Well, I guess the first question is, is it actually data? It, because my suspicion is that almost all of that conversation is anecdotal. You know, two data points are not data. Um, I've been having a number of conversations recently with appraisers who are pretty much confirming the perspective that I think you and I share, which is that there simply hasn't been enough going on in the last two months to create a credible data set out of which one can make determinations like the ones that CNBC is espousing. I would say We've seen a fair amount of renegotiation. 
And in almost every case, the buyer started out with big ambitions, you know, 20% off, 18% off. And in almost every case, we've ended up somewhere between 4 and 6%. There have been renegotiations, but they have not been at the drastic fire sale prices that buyers have hoped for. And I don't believe we're going to go into a marketplace in which things are trading at the drastic fire sale prices that buyers are hoping for. I just don't. I think I can see 5%. I can even see, depending on how much buildup of inventory there is in a particular market segment, it going up towards 10%. I just don't see it going much higher. We had already had, I mean, let's face it, Josh, we're coming off three and a half or four years of declining prices in our market anyway. You know, there was an enormous amount of price capitulation already on the part of sellers. Absolutely. How much more can you expect, you know? Yeah. You know, prices were off already by, you know, 10, in some some cases, 20% just over the last two years. Of course, we started to see that sort of correction. The beginning of the softening happened right around the time that the current president was, uh, was nominated. It was about November 2016. And then, of course, with the elimination of the SALT deduction, that was the first introduction of uncertainty. And then the second wave of uncertainty, which actually worked to uh, my, my advantage in one case on, on a deal that I did at 550 Park, where the buyer was sitting on the fence as to whether or not to do it or not do it. And then, of course, in what was it, March or April of 2000, 2019, I believe, yeah. right? Uh, that the um, increase of the mansion and transfer tax was introduced. And anyone who had closed, who had both gone to contract and closed before June 30th of 2019 was uh, able to uh, close in such a way that it was more affordable. In other words, they had more affordable mansion and transfer taxes at that point. So we were able to execute that deal. But it's just been one wave of uncertainty after another. And then, of course, the trade wars and the volatility uh, that was introduced to the equity markets. And then we have this sort of, uh, you know, crowning crowning moment with the pandemic. Um, and so, you know, we already saw- And let's some not forget, Josh, um, the huge changes in the rental market, which have made investment sales for rental buildings kind of a non-starter. Yeah, yeah, the commercial market uh, and, and the uh, institutional uh, market Uh, was really hurt by that. And that was just all within the last year. So we have a lot of changes on our landscape locally, uh, but those were all baked into the market. So one of the things that we've been doing over the last few weeks is speaking to our friends, both locally and nationally, to get a sense of what's happening in in their world. And so what I'm seeing is that these markets around the country are particularly active and not necessarily the markets around the New York metro area where we're seeing some suburban flight. But we're seeing activity in Florida, very robust, making records. We're seeing activity in Southern California, also robust, further into New England, very, very active. 
the Midwest, super active. So what that tells me is that with mortgage interest rates being at or near record lows and equity markets seeing these this V-shaped recovery, similar to what we saw in December of 2018 into 2019, we had one of the best years in the stock market history in 2019. And remember, Christmas week of 2018, everyone, as far as the uh, equity markets was concerned, thought that the sky was falling and we went to, to have this roaring 2019. So it stands to reason that we're going to have a little bit more of a tepid 2020. But I read the other day that the NASDAQ is actually up on the year after being down almost 30%. So here we are, we, we have a, a fairly you know robust stock market. We have incredibly low interest rates. Your, your idea of there being an uptick in inventory, yes, as compared to where we are today, absolutely. But is it going to be is it going to be uh, up as of the end of February? I have a feeling that it's going to be very much like the equity market where you can almost connect the dots and forget all about this sort of V where everything was taken off the market and nothing new was, was coming on. Uh, 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 statistician and data guy that I follow who does work nationally on real estate named Mike Delpreet, uh he described what he thinks we're going to be looking at, which is a checkmark-shaped recovery. And I kind of like that idea. That feels right to me, that it was quicker on the downslope than it's going to be on the upslope. But there is going to be steady upslope progress over the next six to 12 months. And uh, to me, actually, one of the most interesting things about 2019, to your point, was that we had something which I'm in the business about 40 years. And in that time, there have only been a couple of occurrences in which there was radical divergence in the paths followed by the real estate market and the stock market. And 2019 was one of those times, actually, in which we saw declining values in real estate at the same time as the stock market was ascending to new highs. That was only in New York. That wasn't happening nationally. Nationally, the market was strong in 2019. But for us, the decline that had started a year or two earlier continued in 2019, even as the stock market was rising. Why do you think that was? You know, I have felt that uh, ever since the recovery from the recession, We've had an enormous, we had a great run for five or six years before our market started coming off the peak. But even throughout that run, what was missing from the marketplace was the emotional exuberance on the part of buyers that we saw in the period between 2000 and 2008. Even though people were buying and they were paying up, they were still anxious. 
And I think that anxiety increased for New Yorkers after the presidential election. After all, the president comes from New York. So we knew him better than the rest of the country did. And then there's been one hit after another since then, which you, to, to which all of, uh, all, all of which you alluded to, Josh, you know, the salt tax and then the mansion tax. I think the feeling we've had in New York in the last couple of years is that real estate kind of became the enemy. And I do think that has had an impact on the enthusiasm with which people buy. Well, you know, when you when you look at New York, you have two options if you want to live within the five boroughs, right? You're either going to buy or you're going to rent. And let's take the deal that I cited earlier, where it's a $2.2 million two-bedroom condo with a doorman. So you could buy that for $2.2 million, build equity, and get, you know, theoretically some degree of uh, tax deduction, depending on your tax status, uh, you know, your residential status, et cetera. Um, or you could rent that same apartment. And that same apartment in today's market would probably be somewhere, you know, call it $10,000. It's probably 10 to 12 is what I'm thinking. Right. But, you know, and that's after it, tax dollars. That's after tax dollars. Good point. So you really have to earn $20,000 to pay that 10. So the point is that, uh, you know, it gives you some degree of certainty. But again, to my point, if you're going to be living there only for a couple of years to take it for a test drive, have at it. It's the difference, Fred, between leasing a car and owning a car. If you, if you know that you're going to have the car for four more years and you're going to drive it, say, 20,000 or more miles a year, then you should own the car. But if not, then maybe leasing the car is better for you. So the same can be said for renting or owning. But to say that there was uh, sort of this feeling of, um, you know, real estate being a, a proverbial cold turkey of an asset in New York, I think is a little unfair in that, you know, everybody wants to live in New York. Barbara Corkin was talking to uh, our friend Leonard Steinberg the other day. And uh, you know, she she specifically said that yes, there are people who might be considering moving out if they have a child, if they have two kids, and they're stuck in a 1,200 square foot apartment. Well, for two million dollars, you could move to Westchester, you could move to Short Hills, you could move to Mamaroneck, you could move to uh, you know Stamford, uh, Westport, etc. Uh, so there are a lot of options for the two million dollar buyer in the metro area. But the one thing that they're not going to do is they're not going to live in Manhattan if they're living in the suburbs, and so. Everybody wants to live here. They always have, and they always will. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not the following week, but in six to 12 months, once you get on the other side of this thing, we all know because we've been through it. I've been here for 25 years. You've been here for 40 and in your entire life, but I'm, we're talking about the business specifically. We know that New York is an extraordinarily resilient economy and the people who live here are very elastic. And so my point is that we're going to bounce back People are going to sh going to for forget about this, and they're going to be facing forward, one foot in front of the other. 
We're going to be going back to the theaters. We're going back, going to go back to the restaurants. Are they going to be the same mom and pop that you used to go to for the last 20 years on the corner where they had a lease that was choking them already? Maybe not, but another restaurant will open in its place and we're going to get back to life as we know it. I completely agree with that. I've always actually said that part of our job as real estate agents is that we're the Chamber of Commerce for New York City. But the truth of the matter is, in the great scheme of things, New York City sells itself. Um, I wrote one of my recent Forbes pieces was actually about precisely that, about the fact that when all is said and done, purchasing a home like purchasing a car, but perhaps even more so, is not only a financial decision, it's also a quality of life decision. It's also an emotional resonance decision. And I think if there's one thing that's become perfectly clear in the last two months, when everybody's been spending a hell of a lot of time at home, it's clear that it really matters what home is like. So this is going to be a moment when people are assessing how they felt about their home during this time in which they've spent so much time in it and how they might like it to be different. And I think that actually is going to drive a fair amount of buying activity in the city. You know, I completely agree, Fred. And in fact, you raise a very good point that a home in a lot of uh, instances, and especially when we choose to buy versus the, the the rent option, when we're buying a home, it's really a reflection of who we are and our inner personality, and it's a way for us to shine. I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the things, when I was first in the business, the your apartment was not really something you thought about much in terms of your asset picture. And as prices escalated, the talk about your home as a factor on your balance sheet and how that looked became more and more central to the conversation. And one of the things that I really regretted that I've tried to inject into conversations with Warburg's clients and customers is that you've really got to think of it as more than an asset. You know, I like to say to people, you can't live in your stock portfolio. It's great to have that, but you want someplace in which you kind of have the feeling of exhaling that ah, breath when you come in the door. And that's actually not about money. It's not about appreciation. It's about something different. And I would argue probably in the long run, more important, which is whether or not your home feels like a sanctuary and a refuge to you. And if it just feels great to walk in the door. And I don't think you can put a value on that. No, that's very true. It's, you know, it's about the feeling you get when you walk in the door. And again, it, it's a reflection of, of who you are. So, you know, Fred, I know that you've been with, uh, with Warburg now for your entire career. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got your start? Well, I actually started 
at a firm which is no longer around, but you will remember it, Josh, called LBK. Sure. Um, and then uh, I moved to Albert Ashforth as a manager, but I got started. And then I created Warburg in 1991. Um, but really, I got started in the industry, it sounds funny to say it, because I loved floor plans. Uh, and to this day, I love floor plans. To this day, there is no better form of recreation for me than sitting down with the uh, a, really any book of the select register and just leafing through it. I'm fascinated by the way good architects put space together. People and, like Cantella, people like Carpenter. Yeah. Uh, what are a but also, of your you know, I've been fascinated by the ways in which somebody like Bob Stern has taken those models and attempted to reintroduce some of what I always considered to be the best features of the floor plans of the 20s and 30s back into the condominiums of today. I, I've always, for example, been interested by the fact that in the 50s and 60s, they considered um, foyers, entry spaces, to be wasted space. So you basically open the front door and fall right into the living room, dining room. To me, that has always seemed like the antithesis of wasted space. Having a sense of entry is one of the things that creates that feeling of expansiveness, which is so important to all of us. And look, I could blather on for hours about this, but I won't. Fred, um, uh, so, so just for our viewers who may be uh, not familiar, you know, those outside of New York City, uh, the Select Registry is a uh, phone book-like set of binders. And now that many of them are online, but they're binders that include all the floor plans for all the co-ops and condos throughout the city. And so, uh, you know, a long time ago, we used to sit, if we needed a floor plan for a listing or if we needed to find a floor plan for someone else's listing, we'd go through the select registry to have an index of, you know, all the buildings. So you'd find 550 Park Avenue, for example, or 211 East 18th Street. Then you'd flip through it and then you'd find the floor plan. Let's say you wanted the D line or 11D as an apartment number. Then you'd find the, the, the floor plan. So, Fred, um, what are some of your favorite architects in the city? I know you, you mentioned you mentioned uh, Robert A.M. Stern, of course, who's uh, you know most famous for 220 Central Park South and 15 Central Park West. Of course, he worked on the Superior Inc. building. Uh, but but what are some of those classics? You know, and his Canada? first one was the Chatham. Yeah, I have. You know, everybody tends to send out the same set of super luxurious, super grand buildings. Those are not necessarily my favorites. I love the San Remo. I mean, the San Remo is pretty grand, I admit. But I love the way space is deployed in that building in particular. 
Um, I also have a particular passion for the K-line duplexes on the high floors in the Beresford at 81st and Central Park West. There's this set of three or four duplexes starting on about the 14th floor that they don't face the park, but they clear the surrounding buildings and they're just extremely funky and unusual. Everyone is different. Um, I'm a big fan of the rear apartments at 720 Park. Once again, every one of them is different. There are simplexes, there are duplexes. They're like kind of big colonial houses. Um, and I love that. I am, for some reason, especially now that I'm getting old and my knees are bad, a big fan of duplexes in general because I just love the elegance of walking into an apartment and seeing that staircase rising up above you. Um, another building that I love for that reason is 925 Park, which is not a famous architect building. But in particular, the C-Line apartments in that building, although once again, they aren't the ones on the front that face the avenue, they just have a perfect colonial house layout. So what I'm I, hearing, what I'm hearing, Fred, is you're you're a lover of grandeur and symmetry, which is all things, which are all things that that architects of the of the early apartment house, like John Carpenter at 550 Park and a number of others, are known for. Yeah, I'm a big Carpenter fan. I grew up in a Carpenter building. Um, my mom then moved to another Carpenter building. Uh, we grew up at 635 Park. She then ended up at 580 Park. And these apartments just have a certain restrained elegance. And that, I think, is the hallmark of the Carpenter building. The, Can the Candela buildings, which are also ravishingly beautiful, are less English in feeling. To me, they've always felt more Italianate. They're a little more florid. They're a little grander. Um, and they too are fabulous. Again, because I'm a sucker for duplexes, I happen to love the Candela Apartments at 1972nd and Street. They also have the circular staircase, which I think is one of the great inventions of all time. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody talks about 740 Park. I admire 740 Park, but it's not someplace I ever wanted to live. Uh, not believe me that they're within my budget anyway, but they're a little too grand for me. They, huh. um, there isn't a single space in those apartments that's cozy. There's no huh. place where you kind of feel like you want to curl up with the book. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, there people people talk about their dream boards, and you know, oftentimes they have beach houses or ski chalets or you know vineyards or unbelievable homes somewhere looking over the mountains. And you know, we as New Yorkers, 
you know, we think about, you know, the sea line or the K line. Exactly. <laughs> 925 Park or, you know, the duplex. People are like, duplex? What do you mean? Every house is a right. duplex. You know? What on earth are you talking about? Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. <laughs> so, Fred, tell us a little bit about your experience growing up in New York City. Many of us are sort of, uh, you know, ex you know, Philadelphian in my case, or people move from Chicago or Florida or California, everybody wants to live in New York, but you actually have the advantage of, of having grown up right here in the city. What was that like? You know, I would say that I grew up in the incorporated village of the Upper East Side. Um, we went to school in the neighborhood. Our friends lived in the neighborhood. And the neighborhood was small. Uh, it basically extended from 59th Street to 96th Street or 98th Street if you were on Fifth Avenue. Um, and it extended from Central Park to Third Avenue. In some cases, it went a little farther east, like on 72nd Street. Um, but all in all, it was a very small slice of the city in which I grew up. The city we live in today, in which there's so much more freedom about where people live and how they move around, that was 100% not the case when I was a kid in the 50s and 60s, I had one friend who lived on Central Park West in the Majestic, and we felt like we were going to Mars when we visited him. <laughs> the, the Upper West Side, also known as Mars. Mars, exactly. <laughs> and the Upper West Side, I think it's important to remember, was kind of like a movie set, especially in the 70s and the 80s. You had these incredibly grand buildings on Central Park West, but then Columbus and Amsterdam were really dicey. And when I moved to Central Park West, the year I got married, which was 1977, um, I moved to Central Park West and 86th Street. And uh, there was about a decade or a decade for oh. you. I'm sorry. I lost you for a minute. Somebody it's called okay. me. No um, it, it was no doubt an agent. Um, <laughs> but we didn't walk down the side streets. We didn't want our kids to walk down the side streets. And every phone booth, remember phone booths? Every sure. phone booth was the site of innumerable crack transactions. <laughs> so the Upper West Side was a very different place from the far more homogenized area that it is today. You know, I like to joke that Compared to my childhood, Manhattan has essentially turned into a big theme park, and that, which in many ways is good. A lot of the seediness, a lot of the crime has been eliminated. But if you had told me, or God knows my parents, 
that we would be selling condos for over a million dollars on the Bowery. <laughs> they just would have thought that you were the one smoking crack. That's true. That's true. I mean, you know, all of New York, right? You have Eldred Street, Allen Street, Ludlow yeah. Street. I remember I sold, I sold uh, an apartment on the Lower East Side, and at this point, I, I used to hang out in the East Village in the Lower East Side. There were bars on Ludlow and Eldridge, and at one point, uh, a buyer that I was working with sent me a listing. I'll never forget. It was at 154 Attorney Street, and this is just sort of in the beginning of when people carried Blackberries and and uh, way before iPhones, of course. And I got out of the F train. I knew that it was, you know, somewhere in that neighborhood. I didn't uh. really check it closely on a map. I just figured it was sort of in line with Ludlow, but I wasn't sure where. And I figured I'd get out of the F train at the Second Avenue stop, front of the train. That's another nuanced thing about New York. You have to know: Are you going to be in the front, middle, or where the back on of the, the train? train. Right? Absolutely. So, so I was at the front of the train. You pop out at First Avenue, also known as Ludlow Street. I'm sorry, Allen Street, south of the Delancey there. And I walked east. And I kept going and I kept going and I kept going. <laughs> and I said, Jesus, where the hell? I, I, it's got to be here. I looked up on my Blackberry online. I found a math application. That, and I, sure enough, it was all the way east on, uh, on, on Delancey Street there. And, and I found it and uh, found Attorney Street. And, uh, and, you know, I sold him a $2 million condo on Attorney Street. So, to your point of you know selling things in the Lower East Side and the Bowery and all these areas that are now pretty much fully gentrified, there are really very few little pockets of the city that that aren't gentrified. You know, yeah. even even Chinatown and, and Little Italy are now basically fully fully uh, you know fully gentrified. You know, Kenmare Street, all these condos. So it's interesting. You've seen a really huge arc of the huge. development of of Manhattan and into Brooklyn and Queens and all the boroughs. And so, yeah, I like to joke with my agents that basically what we've seen, you know, the old saying about rich people, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Yeah. Um, and my New York joke about that is Brooklyn to Brooklyn in three generations. <laughs> um, that the grandparents couldn't wait to escape Brooklyn the parents grew up in Manhattan and the kids are moving back to Brooklyn. That's right. That's right. Well, with that, Fred, I really appreciate your incredible perspective. Over 40 years in uh, Manhattan real estate, you bring uh, it, you know, an exceptional perspective. And thanks so much for uh, spending time with us today. Everybody, it's been Frederick Peters, CEO and president of Warburg Realty Partners. Thanks again, Fred. It was lots of fun. Thanks again for having me.